Hello and welcome to Level Playing Field Podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I am the fan liaison officer at Level Playing Field. This is a podcast that aims to shine a spotlight on disability subject matters in the realm of sport. In this month's episode, we focus on the very real, sometimes challenging, but almost always a personal subject matter that is disability abuse. I want to warn you from the start that you may hear stories that you might find upsetting. If you have been the subject of disability abuse of any kind, I would advise that you contact the police by calling 101. Unless it's an emergency, then please do call 999. There are also disability charities that will be able to support you. These charities can be found in the program description of this podcast episode. So my guests to talk about this particular subject matter that is disability abuse are PC Stuart Bladen and PC Stuart Ward from the West Midlands Police. They are part of the Force Football Unit in that area. I also speak to Swansea City supporters Diane and Callum, mother and son. Callum speaks very openly about the abuse that he has suffered due to his disability. But first, I speak to a true sporting legend, as well as now a cross-bench parliamentarian, the Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. In front of me, as is the way now uh, down Zoom, I have Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. How are you? You know, that is now a really difficult question to ask, because normally you go, oh yeah, I'm fine. No, I am fine. I'm good. Um, my, my family are all safe and well. And, and I think the lens that we view things through now have changed. So um, I'm good. I'm sort of in work and cracking on with things, really. Oh, I mean, before we start talking about the uh, the subject matter we've, we've kind of jumped on for, I, I mean, let's quickly talk. I don't know if you are a football fan, but obviously Wales, as we're recording, Wales are playing this evening against Turkey. Are you a football fan? Are you full of Welsh pride for for the Euros semi-finals all over again? I am massively full of Welsh pride. Um, although I have to admit, I didn't watch a lot of football growing up because my family were completely rugby obsessed. I don't think I watched a football game till I was about twenty-three. <laughs> I now live in the northeast of England, where you know there's a lot of football. So I'm afraid with um, football, I, I'm one of the Welsh that comes out during Euros. The amount of football I watch between times is a bit up and down, yeah. but but certainly sort of major championships. Um, I, I will be there with my Welsh dragon flag and, and everything supporting them. So let's kind of talk about the reason why we're here then. So we, we're doing this podcast because, well, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because about a month ago, so the sporting world decided to do a sporting boycott online um, over the bank holiday weekend to raise awareness on online abuse. Uh, traditional media seem to focus on highlighting online racial abuse, but one in 10 of all reported disability hate crimes take place online. Uh, and sadly, that would seem to continue to rise with recording incidents going up by 33% in 2019 in England and Wales, according to the disability charity uh, Leonard Cheshire. What role does government have to play in tackling this? Or is this very much a social media issue that they need to focus on? I think it's actually a combination of things. Disability is an area that never quite makes it to the top of the list to talk about you know disability hate crime or the abuse that disabled people get and it it, it's really helpful to to look at different protected characteristics and to have sort of that conversation but you know last year when compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders were put on tens of thousands of disabled people with no underlying health conditions it took a really long time for that to get into the media and and if those were applied to other protected characteristics, it would have 
you know, been a massive story. So there's some quite complicated sort of views, misconceptions around disabled people, which it does feel like we're constantly having to fight. And January the 1st last year, trains were meant to be step-free for disabled people. It's now going to be 2070. And and so for me, that's just really typical of how disabled people sort of get ignored. But 20% of the population, I mean, the hard bit is we're not one homogenous group. You know, disability issues just sort of get forgotten about. And that that's really frustrating because you think it, it should be a bit better than that. We're not asking for more, mm. you know, and I joke about my train acts. All I want from train travel is to have the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else. I'm, I'm not asking for a gold-plated carriage or anything like that. But but most disabled people don't have the same miserable experience. It's worse. So, you know, we, we're just asking for sort of equality and equity. So how, how do we get to that then? Because... Rightly, uh, uh, racial abuse has been highlighted in sport and, and and how it's being tackled. But like you said, uh, disability doesn't seem to hit the same media notes as that. I mean, how do we make sure that disability is spoken about in the same breath as um, sexism, racism, homophobia? Yeah. I, I think one of the challenges is we do have a minister of disabled people, but it, that role is based in the Department of Work and Pensions, which you know that is very much um then you know about charity it's about work and employment and it's it's not about actually education or sport or things like that and i think one of the misconceptions is that 2012 changed the world for disabled people now the paralympics were amazing they were stunning but it it didn't change hate crime or you know a lot of the things that we're talking about and and sport absolutely can have um, a positive impact and it can promote inclusion and it can it can do huge amounts of things, but it can't fix all the ills of society. So, you know, for me, I'd like a minister of disabled people. Well, I think we should have a children's minister. We should have lots of different ministers that kind of sit above departments um, and able to have that conversation. And I think also, you know, we're looking at in Parliament online harms legislation, you know, coming soon. Um, and, and so some of it is around, you know, the, the, the social media companies thinking about how they tackle it. But, but we just need to do more on general perception. So before lockdown, I remember I was going on the tube, long story short, they said to me, um, can you travel when it's more quiet? Because people have got important jobs to go to. So I've got a job. And, and so it's that, it's that underlying sort of, you know, disabled people aren't a value to society. And that's really worrying. It's worrying, but it's hard to change. Because, you know, if we hide behind Paralympics change the world, then we don't need to bring about any reasonable adjustments. We don't need to change physical access. We don't need to change academies legislation. We just can carry on poodling on without, you know, addressing many of the real issues that exist out there. You spoke about the 2012 Paralympics and it was the first time in my lifetime where that disability was front and centre of public eye. Do you think since then, though, that we as a society, we are understanding and tackling disability and um, disability issues together or have we gone backwards? Do you think it was 2012 Paralympics? Yay, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden it's like... but nothing's really happened. I think there were a number of people who was sort of, yeah, 2012 was amazing, job done. Yeah. And they, they weren't people in sport, and they certainly weren't people in the organising committee, because the organising committee were really switched on about disability rights and inclusion and, and actually really honest about where where it was. I think there's there are a group of people who's, who think it's done and it's okay. And when you talk to people about how 
I need to book a train 24 hours in advance or all the places I can't get to easily, I think they're quite shocked because they just think it's it's okay. So in a lot of ways, I think we we have gone backwards. And, you know, one of my frustrations is, you know, when young disabled people are told, oh, well, you can be a Paralympian. Well, yeah, you can be if you can get classified and if you're good at sport and if you want to train really hard. But actually, we should be telling disabled children you can be a teacher or you can be a lawyer. Or, But the employment gap for disabled people is twice the national average. Like a, a massive number of disabled people live in poverty. So, you know, we, we're not doing enough to, to fix some of the other things. And I'm sure people think it's really rich me talking about some of this because I was a Paralympian or I am a Paralympian. I, I think for me, it's we, we've just got to think differently about how we integrate disabled people into society and I think a lot of disabled people are feeling quite the the pandemic has hit them really hard because of isolation because of attitude because of you know just the challenges of being out and about so with that in mind then do you we both know the power that sport can have in educating the public with, with social issues um do you think sport should be doing more when it comes to topics like disability abuse and correct disability language so I think governing bodies of sport should absolutely think very clearly about the language that they use and use language of the Equality Act. And they don't all do that. Um, I did have a conversation with someone recently where they said to me, well, I don't like using the word disabled. And that's a non-disabled person saying that. Yeah. And it's like, OK, let's just sort of unpack why you don't like that. And actually, it's because of the negative connotations of disabled and disability but so coming back to your question yeah should should people be using better language yes absolutely because that sets language is the dress of thought and i i really struggle when people say things like able bodies and handicapped and you know if you're 95 crack on you know but but someone in their 20s shouldn't be using out, outdated language because it does impact what what other people think so with that in mind, then, uh, there was a Football Supporters Association report that stated the average age of a person attending Premier League football were in their 40s. And they may have grew up whereabouts language, different kind of language might have been used. So do you think it's the case then that in football is more about educating because the supporters may not intend to insult is is just ignorance maybe on their part of not understanding language and how it changes? How do we get around that then? How do we educate the the, the average 40-plus-year-old man on the stands? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really difficult because I think in sort of quite high-intensity environments, you know, uh, and you see this, um, I think football is one of the sports where you, you probably see it more, is people will use derogatory language. And there was a comedian a few years ago who tweeted uh, – something about disabled people it was meant to be funny and it kind of I mean don't get me wrong there there are sort of jokes that I do find that are funny and this person I can't remember what I I basically went back and said can you use disabled and non I think they used able-bodied yeah and I'd said can you can you use non-disabled and I got a bit hate at the time and it's like I'm not telling him off for the joke I'm, I'm just saying can you use different language because that helps educate it's not easy to do that because some of the the online abuse and some of it is is really horrible so you're beyond educating a little bit about language but actually disability language hasn't really changed that much I think it's people don't understand it I think there's issues with people go oh well it changes all the time it kind of doesn't doesn't really 
So I, I think we just have to be better at, at actually discussing some of these things and, and talking about it. And actually, if you look at where disabled people are in sports organisations, there's not a huge number of disabled people who are employed at the higher levels of sport. You know, how many disabled people sit on sports boards? Hmm. How many people are in senior coaching positions? How many people are, you know, it's it's not it's not many. It's yeah. really not many. And, and so we we need to change that. So it's it's not a, it's not a quick process. And you can't really put out a sheet saying if you're going to abuse a disabled person, can you make sure you use disabled and non-disabled? <laughs> I mean, there's a slight temptation to do that, but but there is also a bit of like ownership of of language as well, you know, which is people can choose the language they use and and just because a group of people choose to use that within a community it doesn't mean to say everyone else can so that, i think that's the bit that um gets difficult because we're a long way off from people having any understanding about disabled people so during my time at level playing field i've spoken to to a lot of football fans and um unfortunately some of them have suffered for verbal abuse uh, throughout their life and they they've they've kind of accepted it as normal like a normality mm. just something they have to put up with and they haven't reported it to the police or stewards at a game. In the work that you do, have you heard the same regarding whether a disabled person might have lived a life of verbal abuse and just go accepted it and just come that well, it's just my life. And and if you have, how do we get around that? How do how do we encourage disabled football fans, rugby fans, cricket fans to report this kind of abuse? Yeah, t- totally agree that abuse becomes normalised. So I think for me, what's been interesting in lockdown has been because I've been away from people for quite a long time. You've kind of had a moment of reset and it's made me realise the amount that I get that I just kind of, you know, I'm, and I'm some things I'm quite sort of thick skinned about and some things, you know, the, the incident on the tube, you know, at the time it's like, oh, whatever, you know, I'm, I haven't got time to, you know, be arguing about. And I do try to not react mm. when somebody says something really rude or offensive, I try to kind of be positive and educate. But it's really hard to do that all the time when actually you want to maybe give a slightly shorter direct. But then they go, oh, you've got your on your shoulder. And I, I think I, I have a bit of a responsibility to try and do, do the right thing. But yeah, I mean, I was five years old when the first person stopped me in the street and asked me why my parents hadn't aborted me. And I had to have this conversation with my mother about abortion. And my mum was amazing in terms of, you know, just having these really open conversations um but but it is hard when it it becomes normalized so actually it it's not about um other people calling it out but but it's about educating other people because sometimes disabled people need a bit of help and support and it's hard to and sometimes you just want to sense check things say did, did, they, did they mean it oh yeah okay that's i i struggle with the word ally but i can't find a better one in in that you know we don't need non-disabled people speaking for or on behalf of us, which is really easy for, for people to do, because then that, that changes the power dynamic. But actually, it's other people noticing and being aware of it. I interviewed two police officers for this podcast, and um, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked them. Uh, the question was, over 7,300 disability hate crimes were reported to the police across England and Wales in 2019-2020, yet only one in 62 cases actually received a charge from the police. Do you believe the system is broken regarding people coming forward to the police and hoping a, a, a result of some form will come about? It's not working at all. So it's reliant on the disabled person understanding what it is. And if you if bad behaviour is normalised, 
it's quite hard. I mean, I, I say that if I complained every time I experienced something that was was rude, offensive because I'm disabled or lack of reasonable adjustment or lack of service, it's just exhausting. And so, you know, from, from that moment and who do you complain to? Is it complaint? Is it hate crime? You know, will it be taken seriously? You know, the Crown Prosecution Service had previously said that, you know, police forces struggle to identify it and then you know, so all along, I think the the pathway, it's really difficult to do anything. And sometimes it's just too exhausting. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've experienced it and, and I know friends have, it's easier just to go, okay, I'll just, just get on with it. So it comes back to disability is just not talked enough about, or, you know, what constru- constitutes, you know, a, abuse. And I think, you know, one of the challenges where we are at the moment in terms of trail of disabled people you're either a Paralympian or a benefit scrounger and a lot of the coverage, you know, slips into inspiration porn. And it's really difficult in sport because there are inspirational moments in sport, but they're not necessarily inspirational just because the person is disabled. So I was with a friend a while ago, I say a while ago, it's probably two years ago now, and wheelchair user and somebody came up to me and went, oh my God, you just inspire me so much to my friend. And my friend said, what, what, because I'm an accountant. (laughs) And and my friend was like, you know, I was a bit sort of jokey about it, but it was like, you know, it, it's that inspirational porn stuff. Just because you're disabled, you're inspirational, and that that just shows the the point of view it's coming from. I mean, I also again about two years ago, I had someone who stopped me in the street and said, "You must have thought about killing yourself loads of times." Not really. What, why why would you say? Well, because because of how you are, and it's like, I had a, you know, I was Paralympian. I got to travel the world. I'm sitting in Parliament. My life is not really, really not horrible. And, but their view of my life was that it was so bad, I might as well end it. And it was like, wow, okay, that, that's really deep-seated issues that, that you've got there. And I spent some time talking to them, but, you know, it, I, I can't fix that person's obvious issues they have with disabled people. But when those incidents happened, you must think, what world are we living in whereabouts someone can be so brazen and come up to me and say something as horrific as that? So it's probably not the worst thing that's been said to me. <laughs> so, you know, when I was pregnant, regularly people would say to me, people like you shouldn't be, have ch- shouldn't be allowed to have children. And so my response to that is, well, Welsh people. But, but sport teaches you a lot of resilience and, you know, right or wrong, you know, you... you And I guess, you know, the way I was brought up, my parents' attitude was that I meant to try and sort of educate people and try and change them. So, you know, if if somebody I cared about or loved said that to me, it would be really different. You know, I'd be really upset. But it was when it's some sort of slightly random stranger, um, it's sometimes sort of um, easier, but you you deal with it in in a different way. But but actually, I think sports helped me for that because you know in in sport you get um you know people stop me and go oh TV have really good makeup artists don't they yeah they do and I get quite a lot of you're not as skinny as you used to be yeah but I'm not training fifteen times a week anymore so so the being in the public eye I think helps develop some of uh, some of that resilience um, and sometimes I just need to walk away I what I worry about lockdown is because I've not. I've lost the resilience for dealing on a daily basis with people who have some very strange things to say to me. I do worry a little bit about when somebody says something which is quite offensive, how I'm going to react. <laughs> well, and, and, 
and, and and I try and you know rise. Michelle Obama had it, you know, right? You you try, you know you go high and you try and say the right thing and you try and educate. I I hope I don't you know turn into a screaming banshee and telling someone to get lost, but not using those words. So let, let's kind of start wrapping this up then. So last question: In the work that you do up and down the country, have you seen good examples of campaigns or anything else addressing disability hate crime? And are you positive? Moving forward, as a society, we're going to start being more progressive when it comes to disability. <laughs> that pause says so much. <laughs> oh, um, I've, I've not, no. I mean, we do need a decent campaign. Um, we need disabled people to be at the heart of it and running it. You know, there's lots of charities which do things to and for disabled people, but we we need more disabled people's organizations part of the discussion and, 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 and running, but most of those DPOs don't have any money. So it's really difficult because you need money to do these things. So, you know, for a lot of what I do is just, just ask a disabled person, you know, and, you know, don't go, well, I've asked one, so that's fine. (laughs) But um, no, we don't, we don't have the right campaigns. Um, You know, I, I I think within, I've, Okay, so within football, you know, I, I I worked for a while on things like ticketing and wheelchair spaces and things like that, and and the nature of politics and parliament is you go in and out of different things. So I've seen some really good things around that, but but there needs to be more. So am I hopeful? I'm I'm eternally hopeful for the future, but but also I recognise, you know, I'm now 51, so we're kind of running out of time, really. And I don't want young disabled children to be fighting for the same things I did. 40 years ago. So um, I think there's COVID's brought a new sense of urgency to me in terms of what we're trying to do. So yeah, we just need, we need to just not be just so horrible to disabled people. I mean, it's not a lot to ask, is it? I mean, it's really not a lot to ask just to be respectful to disabled people and just be polite and don't park in blue badge spaces unless you have one. I mean, I would make it a criminal offence to park in a blue badge space. I mean, it's not about, for me, you know, I can have a space all the way across the car park, but it's actually about being able to open my door. It's about understanding why people need a blue badge space. The point I think I will lose it is when somebody says to me, which has been said loads of times in the past, I'm just popping in for a pint of milk. I, I might just do a very dramatic, oh, really, that is such an awful impairment to have. I am so sorry for you. That that's I'm, I might turn into deeply sarcastic rather than ranting. But, um, you know, it, it's those things that, we need to change. In America, people do not abuse blue badge spaces at all because they understand why they're needed. We we don't still in this country get, we think it's a privileged parking spot near the front entrance as opposed to understanding what the need of it is. Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been, uh, it's been fantastic and thank you for being so honest with me. I, I really enjoyed it. Bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Callum is a 17-year-old Swansea City supporter who at a very young age became a double-leg amputee. From the age of 13, Callum has been a victim of abuse. Sadly, this abuse has had a significant impact on his mental health. This is my chat with Callum and his mum, Diane. In front of me, got Diane and Callum, both Swansea City supporters. The reason that we're talking is because we're actually going to talk about disability abuse, and I thank both of you for coming forward to to discussing this with me. So I suppose I'd like to start by asking you, Callum, go into a bit of detail about the abuse that you have suffered yourself. Well, when I when I started school, because I had a double amputation, um, it was really awkward because 
it's people accepting you and that in there. And there was one boy in the school and he would always just give me a boost. He would just, it'd be like the little things like, oh, get up and walk. Oh, you can't, you can't do this. Oh, where's your legs? Where's this? It puts you down in yourself. What age were you then, Callum? The bullying started around about 13. And it's just since that, it's just been accepted and a lot. Like, I feel like people just don't accept you for the way you are. You're 17 now, correct? Yeah. So in that period, obviously, you're kind of growing into yourself as as a, as a human, as as a, as a grown man. I mean, how, yeah. has, how has it affected you, your confidence and, and how you've lived your life? I don't go out much at all. It literally knocked my confidence down low. I go to the Swans games, I go basketball, and then I just go home. I won't go out because my confidence is really low. Like, I won't wear shorts because people are staring at me and that. Diane, how has it affected you as a mum? Obviously, you're, you're seeing your son kind of, sh- as, as Callum's kind of hinted at, he's kind of sheltered at home. Yeah, it's quite hard because it's the meltdowns of, of it all. It's like flashbacks, nightmares. When you ask him to go somewhere, he's like, oh, no, I, I, I can't go there today. You know, you've got to plan ahead. And, you know, when we go to football, Callum is different. The Swans have done a lot with him. He was he was mascoted six months after his amputation. Was determined, do you know what I mean, to walk out on that pitch. Callum, can can you kind of explain? You kind of spoke about a little bit of verbal bullying you got from the the lad that you spoke about. I mean, has, yeah. it, has it always just been verbal? Has it been like is is it um, physical? I mean, it's all gone. It's always verbal. It's always been verbal. And it's like, it's never going to change. You're always going to get it off someone. Like, you always have that one person where they'll just say something. And and is it just that one person? It's grown. I've had it off a lot of people. It's like a lot of people just think it's funny. And, and did you raise this with your head teacher or your teacher or the school? Um, I just bottled it up. I was too thing to say down to anyone. And um, I had a massive meltdown for it. Like, I just went off on a rail a bit. And... Um, I have to work with someone from... Northampton, the police North, it was. Well, yeah, it was with the police. It's like a support group it was. Mm-hmm. Callum worked with him for six months. He went into school with Callum. Callum totally changed, you know. He was a, he had a disability as well. And he said, when he came into Parliament, he was like looking at a mirror image of myself when I was, what what I feel, he said. So he helped Callum loads. But it didn't stop, did it? it didn't, no, it, it didn't stop. It didn't stop. And he missed the last two years of school. Yeah, I didn't go. He, he I, didn't want to go to school. The school didn't... They, uh, they just stopped caring, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, they, not caring. They, they didn't push him to go to school. And I thought, well, if that's the case, then that that's going to be enough. And now he's gone to college. He's been accepted. I think I think with the disabled and stuff, I think they are labelled. They are victimised of really cyberbullying or what have you. Do you know what I mean? You've had that the last yeah, few weeks. Yeah, I've had that the last few weeks as well. What, what, what do you mean you've had that? What What's happened? It's when the pub's not open. Me and some friends went for food and um, someone messaged me saying something about my legs and I just went like really down for it. And um, we put something on my store, like we put something on Snapchat about it and it, we, um, we put it out there, like what happened and everything. Most people messaged me, like some people were like, all right, well, then. and then you just have the odd people like pop up and laughing faces, haha, where's your legs and that. But is there a way to report that? Um, I just told you, didn't I? Yeah, you, I fo- just... you found out about a different school, didn't you? Yeah, we found out the school they were in. Yeah. And they, 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 they think to the school, they, and they said the Snapchat stories uh, of conversation, they were screen, someone was screenshotting it and 
printed them out and sent it to the school. But we, you haven't heard anything since. No. Yeah, no. As in someone's... So you reported it to the school of the children who were uh, yeah, verbally we, abusing yeah, we you. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, this has been very difficult for you, Callum. And you, and you spoke about kind of going off the rails. And, I, and I'm, I'm kind of putting two and two together, as in, like, you were lashing out. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, at what point did you start telling your mum? Because it sounds like you were kind of bottling it up. Were you talking to your uh, mum about I it? Didn't, I didn't tell her for years. It's only a good, what, year now, isn't it? Like two years, I think, I started two years. in school. And then, then he came out and said, said about that. In the three years then of it, when he had this total meltdown and smashed things up in my house and um, could hear voices. He said, when I close my eyes, I can hear the voices, the, the, the voices are going around in going my head. just through my head what they're saying and all that. So what support have you received, if any? Um, you had some counselling. I had counselling. I didn't think that, that didn't really help. Okay, yeah. Moving away from people, really. Yeah, it's just moving away from a lot of people and just getting a new friendship and that with a lot of other people. Everyone that's in the that I was in school with, I don't talk to anymore because they didn't really care. Yeah. I realised that. They just didn't care. How do you think it's affected you as a person now? Now that you're talking about it and, you seem, and, and you, you're talking quite openly about it, and I appreciate that. But how, how do you feel now, this moment, like being a disabled person? Are you finding life better? I mean, do you find that people understand more or do you think there's still a massive struggle? No. It's a massive drug. People, people just don't care these days. Like they don't care at all. It's like we're we're no different to anyone else. We're the exact same people. We're all human ones. Like you could be in a wheelchair, you could have like Down syndrome or something. You're still the same person. You've all got like a heart and everything. And um, there's no difference. Like why should we be treated? What happens if they were treated like the way we've been treated? Like we haven't done anything wrong to be treated like that. So when you raised this, have you at any point gone to the police as well? The file could have gone to the police. The, the yeah, person we, who came into school, the Carlam, worked the Carlam. We had the file. And said he had a meeting with the boy, but he only could take it to a certain level. He denied it at first, and then he said, then he admitted stuff then. And the, what what he said and what have you. The school saying, oh, you need to tell us what's going on. But he was too afraid because there was 13, on, there was yeah. 13 of them in a class, uh, 14 of them in a class, was 13 on to one. And I stopped telling the school because they just brushed it under the carpet. So what are the steps then to make sure this doesn't happen, in your opinion? What do you think needs to happen? People need to start caring about others and not just themselves. They need to realise that everyone's the same in life. And how, how do you think we can do that? Get the disabled involved with... with... Yeah, disabled involved with like more, no, like more people that just think that it's just normal. You, you kind of spoke about, or Diane spoke about, football kind of being a safe space for you. I mean, how yeah. much has football helped you then where, during this period, which seems very dark it's and very fo- hard football's helped me a lot at the moment we can't go out because of everything we can't go to the games but when we could it was just in, like it was just a nice day out i could just be like more like myself the police are there to protect and enforce the law particularly on a football match day when a lot is going on But with fans not attending and more people watching the game at home, we have sadly seen a rise in online abuse. The West Midlands Police have acted on this by introducing the country's first dedicated football hate crime officer, Stuart Ward. I speak to him as well as his colleague, PC Stuart Bladen. 
In front of me, I have PC Stuart Bladen, or AKA Blade, as I've been informed, uh, which he will be known throughout this podcast going forward, because we have another Stuart, PC Stuart Ward, also known as Wardy, but I'm going to call him Stuart, just because it's easier for me. They're both from the West Midlands Police Force Football Unit. Yeah, how are you both? You both well? Good, thank you. Yes, all good, thanks. I'm good. I'm in a cupboard. You're in a cupboard. I, I feel like we're all living <laughs> our best lives. <laughs> so as we record this, we're only a few days out until the start of the Euros 2020 and 2021. I mean, how are you both feeling? Not from your job roles, but like as England fans, I'm presuming. How are you both feeling I'm, about the Euros? I'm always optimistic. I'll probably get carried away. I've already sung the song, it's coming home. Just so people know As the it, voice, sorry, that's, that's Stuart Ward speaking there, and talking now is Blade. Yeah, as a dedicated football officer, this is usually our time to kick back and relax and take all our annual leave that we're not allowed to take during the season because we have to work <laughs> every Saturday. But uh, yeah, in force, we've got quite a big operation for the Euros, so we'll be... Uh, we're, we're, we're all working that at the moment, so uh, it is a busy time for us. Stuart Ward, you became the country's first dedicated football hate crime officer. Some people might not really know what that means, so can you just kind of explain in a layman's term what exactly that your role is and what your day-to-day job is? So ultimately, um, I'll be investigating all forms of hate crime offences uh, within a football environment. So although supporters are kind of only just gradually going back into grounds now, it will be abuse aimed at supporters, uh, abuse aimed at players, managers, match officials, but also picking up a lot of social media offences that are predominantly are aimed at, at football players. Um, so I'll be investigating those and looking to obviously identify people. So Blade, your your job, I'm presuming, would be match day, really, like supporting the, the force on the match day. Am I right in saying that? And if it is, how has the pandemic kind of affected your role? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm the dedicated football officer for Aston Villa. So I deal with Aston Villa on match days, but also away from match days because we, we deal with like the Regional Dis- Disabled Association. We also attend the Aston Villa Disabled Supporters uh, Association meetings. So you say match day, I'm there throughout. So even in the week, we're dealing with that. During COVID, it's been really, really soul-destroying, to be fair. Sitting in stadiums with no fans, it's a soulless bowl. I don't know how the players feel, but as somebody who sits in the control room uh, each week, you don't know a goal's gone in because there's no crowd reaction or anything. I try and keep in touch with my fans. I've tried to drop a call to them on a monthly basis, make sure some of them are okay, especially the Disabled Supporters Association, see if they're okay, if they need anything really touching base because I know mental health plays a big part. And football's a great escape for people, especially around mental health. And without that, you can see there's there's going to be a little bit of a, an increase in MH problems, really. Um, so one of the... Oh, phone call. So one of the things I think we'll kind of start touching on regarding disability abuse is kind of a current topic, really. And um, for whatever reason, it's become politicised, and that's face coverings and masks. Football is looking to return, obviously, next season, hopefully with full stadiums, but face masks may be part of going back. We don't know, but it possibly could be. Some disabled supporters are exempt from having or using face masks. Have you started thinking about preemptively how you can 
protect supporters who are exempt from face masks not being harassed and, and possibly suffering some form of abuse, either verbal or physical? Yeah, I mean, like, as, as a father of a son with autism, I know that face, not wearing a face mask is really important to him. So he can pick up on the facial expressions and the clues for communication. That's really important for some disabilities, and I recognise that is going to be an issue going forward. With the Aston Villa Disabled Supporters Association, they carry little cards with them that tells people that they have a disabled need, really. And so they're able to ask for assistance and show the card, uh, and just really that's a good idea for them. I know the sunflower lanyards are available for some people, but some people don't like to wear them because it highlights they have a disability, and I understand that. And I just ask people to be... I've asked the club to be more understanding and to and to show that approach when they're asking people about face masks and things like that. So if a supporter does receive abuse at a football game and they go to speak to their nearest steward, but the supporter feels that the steward has not taken their complaint seriously enough, what other options does the supporter have to raise their complaint during the game then? Um, do you want me to do it from a match day and then Stuart can do it retrospectively? So basically on a match day, I'd encourage anybody to, to raise that complaint with the steward immediately. If they feel the steward's not taking it seriously and it's not being reported back, then to find the nearest police officer. At Aston Villa, I tend to put police officers, uh, including operational football officers, on the disabled platform um, right there by the disabled supporters. So if there is an issue, I'd encourage anybody to approach them and please report it and we will act because the best time to act is there and then. Retrospectively, we're just playing catch-up. So my advice is please report it then and there so we can act then and there, really. Um, Retrospectively, Stuart's kind of bag. So. so yeah, it will obviously that report made whether it's to the steward, but ultimately it'll come come through to the police, um, and then it will the classic land on my desk as such. So I'll be looking to collate statements, collect CCTV, uh, witnesses, um, supporters, and stewards, and just gather all that evidence. Um, obviously, if it's reported there and then in the ground, as Blade says, we'll look to act swiftly and that person will likely be arrested um, we can interview them and then obviously we can do all the follow-up inquiries after that uh, and look obviously to, to prosecute the, the individual if that's what the victim wants obviously there'll be ongoing discussions with that victim to to understand their wishes what they want not everyone wants matters to go to court we understand that so we have got different options and We'll discuss that with with that victim. Uh, Stuart, I mean, we have seen an increase of a rise of online abuse for all minority groups, including disability, over this period of social isolation due to COVID. Last month, football took the lead in a social media blackout to kind of raise awareness uh, regarding the issue. But in reality, more probably does need to be done to stamp out abuse. What powers do you have to act online uh, to stop the abuse? And how would a person go about raising the issue if it happens online instead of on an actual match day? I do always say it's, it's a lot easier to investigate stuff on a match day purely because all your grounds now they have CCTV, which is a really good quality. It can zoom in, it can pick up the minute detail on your clothing. Social media is very different. Um, a lot of conversations I've had with people were that, oh, I've had this message. I didn't actually know that it was abuse or it was a criminal offence. So we're trying to obviously do a lot of education work around that. And we're just encouraging people that if they are subject of any form of abuse, that they report it. They report it to the social media platform. 
they take screenshots of the messages that they've had along with the, the individual's username that sent the message and report it to the local police force via 101 or most forces have a web chat facility to report it through. We can only start encouraging social media companies to make changes to their platforms when we have the reports coming into us. If there are no reports, then it's a little bit difficult to go to social media platforms and say there's an issue on your platform without that evidence. So we always encourage it. And again, I'll investigate that and look at identifying the, the offending username. So in your opinion then, the, the argument that's kind of come across for social media is that algorithm is so good now that they can spot certain words that is deemed offensive. Is that something for you to do your job that the social media companies need to really invest in and highlight that and then that goes directly to you as a police force? Yeah, I think the social media companies are slowly changing how they pick up certain words and now that they've they've just created a mechanism where you can go on to your own social media account and you can put words in to block so they don't come into your onto your profile they don't go into your direct messages so you should never ever see those messages okay there's going to be occasions where they may slip through because you're relying on technology but on the main we should be getting to a stage where those words, comments, sentences are blocked out and should never reach the user. But is that a case of instead of actually tackling the problem, what we're doing is allowing someone to put something out there, but the victim themselves won't see it, but it's still yeah. out there? Yeah, I mean, I, there's things I think would be really good. I've, I've talked about ID verification for accounts, which I think would stop a lot of yeah, abuse because you'd have to sign up with some form of identifying account, NHS number or driving license number, for example, which would link back to an individual. I get the arguments for and I get the arguments against. What the answer is, I, I generally don't know because it is such a big issue on social media. The, the, big, the big issue on social media at the minute is, is obviously racism and the reports that I've had come through to me very little or none relate to uh, abuse towards a disabled person. Now, that will be going on on social media, so I would always encourage people to to report those offences as well because it gives us as a police a bigger picture, a better idea of what's actually happening uh, on these platforms. Is there a case, though, that the reason that there hasn't you haven't seen that much on disability abuse is maybe because disabled support, disabled supporters or disabled people have have had terminology and certain language thrown at them all their lives, so they don't really see it as abuse, or if they do, um, they they might not feel like anyone's going to act on it. So, for instance, Leonard Leonard Cheshire did a report last year that stated that disability hate crime continues to rise, with over seven thousand three hundred disability hate crimes being reported to the police across England and Wales. Last year, yet only one in two, so one in 62 cases actually received a charge. So there may be a case that there's some disabled people who are like, well, what's the point? If we raise it, nothing's going to happen. How do you answer that and how do we get past that? How, how do we make sure that any victim feels like they can come to the police and action will happen? I mean, I'd always say I'd never discourage anyone to come to the police. I understand there's people that won't trust the police for various reasons, and a lot of that is to do with bad experience. With my role, obviously, because it's dedicated towards hate crime, if it's within a football environment, it will come into me, I will investigate it, and I will look to always identify someone and take that matter to court if the victim wants that, if that individual wants it to go to court. 
obviously I will never be able to guarantee that and I will explain that to the victim. We obviously work very closely with the Crown Prosecution Service and all hate crime or hate-related offences have to go through the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, but without a victim making a complaint and witnesses coming forward, we will never be able to make any change or bring these perpetrators to justice. I also think dedicated football officers have got a role to play in that as well. We need to make ourselves more visible to our community to make them feel more able to report these things to us and that they're going to be listened to and action is going to be taken. So I think we've got a role to play to get ourselves out there, get ourselves into the different groups and say, we're here, we're listening, give it us and we'll deal with it. Well, you kind of touched on it then. then. So what, what proactive measures can be taken by clubs, fans and police to ensure that as a collective we're educating people regarding disability abuse? Because I, I, I think we talk about disability abuse and we kind of speak about it in the realm of disability. But I think for me personally, having that conversation with non-disabled people can be encouraging because we're just engaging in conversation and understanding about language and so on. Looking forward, what can be proactively done? I think education is massive, uh, just raising that awareness, continually educating people, and that's across all areas, uh, and not just within football as well, across all all communities uh, and, and societies. Obviously, people come to football games from different backgrounds. We just need to get into those people, give them that education, that confidence to, to know what hate crime is in terms of a disabled supporter and, and ensuring that it, it doesn't this abuse doesn't happen. I do think as well, we're quite reactive and we should be more proactive. I mean, the education programmes that we've put in place are a result of an incident happening. But if we could invite fans in anyway, just to listen to the silences of the stories. I mean, we had a group of Villa fans who was deemed to be uh, racially abusing a player, chanting at a game. Um, What we did was we brought the kids together into a room and put them with uh, different supporter groups at Aston Villa. So we had Villa and Proud, Villains Together, uh, and we had a disabled supporters group, and we let them. We didn't have any structure to the meeting. What we did was let those different groups tell the the youths their experiences on match day and how it affected them. And I think that was more impactful than anything else we could ever do because let them do the talking, let them... And to take that out proactive rather than doing it to people who are committing offences and just invite fan groups in and say, come and have a listen, and this is their experience on match day, would give people a greater understanding. I mean, for you and me, if we wanted to go to a match, we'd just put a coat on. For some of my disabled supporters, they have to check the trains have got ramps. They have to check that there's taxis available that can support their wheelchair. If it rains, they're going to get really wet. They have to take extra clothing because most of their seating is out in the rain. Things like this, people don't have to think about it, but a disabled supporter does. And and they don't have a clue of what they have to think about before they go to a game. And if we did it proactively where fans were, were more enlightened, I think we'd see a lot less abuse. Blade, Wardy, we're going to stop now because we're both in cupboards and it's 24 degrees and we're both sweating. Uh, but thank you for your time. Thank no you. Worries, thank, thank you, you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you to all my guests for taking part in today's episode. Once again, I would like to stress that if you have been the victim of disability abuse please do inform the police and if you would like to know more about what constitutes disability abuse please click on the relevant links in this episode description 
that's it for this week we will be back in a month's time please do go rate and review the podcast on apple Podcasts because it does help people find this podcast i said podcast a few times there if you would like to know more about the work that we do at level playing field then please head on over to levelplayingfield.org.uk until next time stay well 